Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Welcome everybody. My name is Sean Lydon. I'm the current chair of vascular surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. And I have two colleagues here with me today to talk about aortic dissection. So we'll introduce ourselves. So next to my, my left is... Uh, hi, uh, everybody. I'm Malin Desai. Uh, I'm the medical director of the aortic center and director of uh, clinical operations for the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine. And to my right. Hi, my name is Scott Cameron. I'm a vascular medicine physician and cardiologist, and I serve as the section head of vascular medicine at Cleveland Clinic. So at the Cleveland Clinic, we actually see a large number of aortic dissections, both from uh, small hospitals, mid hospitals, and even large hospitals. And uh, Melinda, I'd maybe ask you to talk about first about, so when someone calls with a, uh, a aortic emergency, an aortic dissection, how do they get to us? And then and, and how do we actually start out by evaluating the patients and where do they go? So uh, it is all about teamwork and very coordinated, synchronous teamwork. It, it is, uh, so if there is a smaller institute or, or an affiliate program, that has a patient that presents to their emergency room with an acute, suspected uh, acute aortic emergency, and they do the initial set of testing that confirms uh, uh, the possibility of aortic dissection or any acute emergency, then they in, there's an emergency phone line that they can get, a, get in contact with us. They are connected state, straight to our critical care uh, team uh, uh, physicians, uh, fellows, et cetera, here at the main campus. Uh, and essentially, then the, the process starts really quickly. Depending upon the circumstances, we could send our uh, air support or ambulance support uh, to the patients can be transferred via air, uh, helicopter, or uh, uh, ground ambulance. Uh, they come to our ICU. Uh, but there's an important thing also that happens concomitantly. We have developed a robust cloud-based system where the images are transferred uh, as the patient is still in route so that we can have uh, an ev evaluation of these images and have a game plan before the patient ever uh, reaches the Cleveland Clinic. And, and we can mobilize and assemble the team so that essentially everybody's waiting because time is money, as we all know. Once the patient gets here, they end up in our ICU, depending upon if there's a call that the patient needs to go to the, uh, to the OR emergently, then so be it. But majority of the patients end uh, up in our ICU, have a quick evaluation. Uh, if there's some confirmation testing that needs to be done, that happens. If some stabilization needs to happen, that happens. And if a decision is made to initiate uh, uh, transportation to the OR, as I've alluded to, everybody has a game plan uh, to a point where it happens fast and very synchronous. Uh, and and it, it works really well. Uh, we have established uh, a robust system, including a robust support system, and it, it is basically uh, become a stellar organization in terms of uh, receiving acute aortic care. I think that's one of, to me, one of the amazing things is that before a patient comes, we'll, we use Epic as our electronic medical record system, and we'll have a chat in, in Epic that, one, alerts anybody involved in aortic care 
that a patient's coming, it'll uh, usually one of our cardiologists who does imaging will actually pre-review the imaging once we have them electronically to let people know they're there. It allows the cardiac surgery team, the cardiology team, and the vascular surgery team all to pre-review the images. And so if someone had a ruptured uh, dissection or had a ruptured aneurysmal dissection or has a type A dissection, we can get the OR teams ready to go. And the amazing thing is we're all expected to sort of coalesce at the patient's bedside upon arrival and sort of figure it out. There's times when uh, patients will be sent to us and they're not sure if it's a type A or a type B. And instead of sitting there and saying, well, you'll start on this service and then maybe you have to go to that service or I have to make 12 phone calls. The key thing that we really tried to do is we tried to see it through the eyes of the referring clinicians and that that the patients, the answer is always yes and there's always a bed. And so when we became an institute back in 2008, the first head of the institute, Dr. Lytle, said the answer shall never be no for an aortic catastrophe. And I don't know how our cardiac ICU always does it but with only 26 beds, they are always able to make a bed for any time of the day, 24 hours a day to get those patients here. And I think then the other key thing is that we continue to do the care all the way through after they go home. One of the things that we realized uh, in the last couple of years is that when patients go home, say they had a type B and they're just undergoing medical management with impulse control, that the ongoing care of those patients is critical and that if you don't see them early to make sure they need adjustments of their medicines, they bounce back. So maybe Dr. Cameron, you wanna talk about some of the things we've initiated here to try and capture those patients who might otherwise not be ready to go all the way back to their internist or the referring physician, but need something on the interim way that we can help transition them back to the people who referred them to us. Sure, that's a really great question, Dr. Leiden. Um, Having worked in other institutions um, that are perhaps a little bit less cohesive, one of the things that I thought was fantastic about the Arctic program is that complete ownership is assumed for the patient, not only just at the time of the procedure, but then also wherever they happen to go back into their home environment. Now, one of the issues that we're always concerned about, as you well know, is that patients who have aneurysms, the wall of that part of the blood vessel is a little bit weaker than the rest of the blood vessel. And so you really don't want to be in a situation where a patient is exposed to excess pressure in that area, either before the surgical procedure or even after the surgical procedure. And what we've found is that if you look at the data, and I think nationwide hospitals would admit this, patients that have undergone surgery for aortic dissection or rupture, a lot of them have blood pressure excursions when they leave the hospital environment. It may be low blood pressure, it may be elevated blood pressure, and both of those are just as harmful as each other because we know that in a patient who's undergone a major aortic surgical procedure, there are blood vessels that come off of that main aorta into the spinal column. You certainly don't want the blood pressure to be too low. That can be dangerous. But similarly, when there's a fresh surgical site, you don't want the blood pressure to be elevated. And so patients, they can perceive if their blood pressure is elevated or if it's too low. And when the patient doesn't feel well, the natural thing we tell them is they should go to the emergency department. One of the initiatives that we've now engaged in is that the patients will be pre-screened before they leave the hospital after surgery. They're given a blood pressure cuff, they're given a very clear algorithm, and they're plugged into a vascular medicine physician or vascular cardiologist even before they've seen them they're able to follow up with them by telephone. And sometimes we can actually make medication changes over the telephone that prevents a patient from 
having to go to the emergency room. And then sometimes inevitably, particularly if it's in a rural area, the emergency departments will certainly say, well, this is a major procedure the patient's had. Perhaps we should just transfer them back to Cleveland Clinic. And a lot of that creates undue anxiety for the patients as well as their families. So I think in taking care of patients carefully in the back end, we can prevent a lot of these rehospitalizations. So I think the other thing that from taking care of a lot of patients comes a lot of research. And maybe, uh, Melin, you can talk about some of the things we've looked at in the ICU in terms of our research of initiatives to try and look at the patients we care for, how we understand our patient populations and how we've improved or altered our care. I mean, I know the one thing that we've all seen in the last uh, five to 10 years is shortages of medicines and, and pricing increases. And I know we've struggled a lot with what we best use to impulse control our patients. And you want to talk about maybe some things we looked at in the ICU phase of care in terms of how we better understand our patients and how that's altered our approaches based on our, our research. I mean, you know, and I think as we have discussed a few minutes ago, uh, it is not just one thing, it is a lot of things. It is a combination of a lot of things. It is pivoting from if one particular medicine is not available, if things are more expensive, if the generic brand all of a sudden gets to be astronomical, then recognizing that and pivoting to a cheaper version uh, or a more effective version, uh, and we, we've done it really well. Uh, you know, the, 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 the story on the niprides or the beta blockers, uh, we continue to evolve. And it's just not one little thing. It is a combination of many things. Uh, the other aspect I, 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 I am particularly intrigued is, is, the, is, the, is the, what Sean mentioned, uh, the cloud-based, image assessment, that the, 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 the time saving, the, the data that we have published on saving time in terms of when a patient is identified to the, when the patient comes here. And we are, not, we are not wasting time repeating scans. We are not wasting time uh, trying to make a diagnosis or getting the, the ubiquitously missing disk that the transfer service forgot to, to bring to us. So, so it is this cloud-based image assessment, the chat, the simple things uh, that we have done have made a tremendous dent in, in form of communication, in form of image transfer. And then once the patient gets in, the pivoting to, you know, utilizing the best possible available therapies and pivoting, you know, when there is a supply shortage, then pivoting to alternative solutions very quickly. You know, having been here 20 years, when I first got here for minimally invasive treatment for dissections was taking devices and making them on the back table. Since then, we first started with physician-sponsored research studies to use commercial devices and then have been participated in uh, thoracic trials leading to approval of all the devices. Now we have trials for treating non-operative patients for type A's with uh, dissection devices. We now have arch branch trials. And so we've really tried to innovate and our technique of who we do and the best timing to do it has continued to evolve over time. I think one of the things we know is that we first only waited till someone was really bad malperfused. They were either having visceral ischemia, renal ischemia, limb ischemia, and their mortality was better with endovascular therapy than nothing. 
and better than open surgical mortality, but it was still 40%. And so now we've really worked hard to see what are high-risk features. And so we have patients who might come in with a type B dissection or impulse controlled by the cardiologists and vascular medicine colleagues, but we know that they're likely to grow. And so we'll wait to an opportune time about six weeks down the road to treat them and to seal up their intraterior to have better long-term outcomes. But I think the one thing that we still don't have the best idea on is who then to use that in the connective tissue patients and how likely they are to have dissection. So maybe, Dr. Cameron, you want to comment on? Before uh, Scott goes, I I would like to make one comment. Sorry, Scott, to steal your thunder for a second. But one of the things that we have evolved, uh, and again, I'm not a surgeon, but but, uh, dealing uh, with these patients a lot, is the business of complete repair in, a, in the midst of an emergency. So it is not in, when the patient is in the middle of a catastrophe. It is, at least at the Cleveland Clinic, we have access to fantastic cardioaortic surgeons who are skilled at doing a complete job. So it is no longer uh, okay to just replace a portion of the mid-ascending aorta with a short supracoronary graft. There are patients where we would do a complete job, including a root repair, root uh, uh, operation, ascending aorta operation, as well as a frozen elephant trunk operation with side branches that Dr. Leiden alluded to. And these are complete operations that reduce, uh, repeat uh, unnecessary procedures with excellent, excellent outcomes. So, So evolution, so it is no longer just a small operation and get out of dodge, but do a complete operation and be, and this has been a very successful strategy. Sorry, Sean. Oh, so Scott. we're basically getting to the, the connective tissue patients, patients with aerostanulose or Marfans, and when, whether or not they're at risk for developing a dissection or if they've had a dissection, at what threshold for re- be repaired. And so maybe, Dr. Cameron, you can talk about some of the services we have available here to sort of look if people don't know they have a connective tissue disorder, services we've had to figure out, do you have one? And then how we coordinate care amongst all the different specialties in terms of when and how to coordinate a repair. That's right. So I, I think we're pretty good in terms of imaging modalities to know exactly what a patient has. And clearly the surgical and, and um, endovascular therapies have, have advanced. But two questions um, are always asked by patients. Number one question is, this disorder that I might have in my blood vessel, is it something that I inherited or is it something that I can pass on to my children or is it something that my brothers and sisters have? That's an excellent question. And there are certain considerations for that group of patients. And then the second thing is, are there any medical therapies um, that could be adjuncts to surgery to prevent a surgical procedure, to delay a surgical procedure, or even to be used after it? And the answer to that question is also yes. Now, specifically for the patients who may have a heritable disorder, um, those that we probably hear most about are Marfan syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so those are two very specific disorders of blood vessels where some of the structural proteins that give the blood vessel its strength um, are slightly different. And there is a mutation in the gene. And so the proteins that are involved in those two disorders don't behave the same way in the blood vessel wall. And we know from history and by looking at data that anybody who's got those disorders, if there's an aneurysm, it's statistically more likely to grow a little bit faster. And so if we're able to identify that a patient has one of those particular genes, then it influences how often we will image the patient. And it also influences when we should say, now is the time for surgery. 
Now, if you're talking about the top part of the aorta that's coming out of the heart and the bottom part of the aorta, the number that everyone usually adheres to in most guidelines is 5.5 centimeters. Everyone will universally agree that that's a reasonable time to correct that particular aneurysm before there's an issue. We certainly know between five and 5.4 centimeters, that's also considered very reasonable. But if you have a patient that has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, for example, or Marfan syndrome, or Lewis Dietz syndrome, and I see all of those patients, we know that those patients would benefit from having intervention earlier before they actually develop a tear, a dissection, or even worse, a rupture, which is life-threatening. Now, the other thing that's also important is to always individualize it to the patient. And I'll give you an example. If I have a patient who has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and they happen to find out they're pregnant, that's, we have to personalize care to that patient because we know that with the hormonal changes during pregnancy, there are certain increased risks. We know that the hemodynamic forces, the mechanical forces on the aorta, they're gonna change during pregnancy. We know that blood volume increases by 50% during pregnancy. So these are always things that we're thinking about when we see patients really trying to personalize the care. Uh, we have a cadre of highly qualified genetic counselors who understand anatomy and physiology of blood vessels as well as most physicians. And quite often I've found patients can be referred for a certain disease and one disease I'll just mention is fibromuscular dysplasia. I've had several referrals for that and I find out they don't have fibromuscular dysplasia. They actually have a mutation in some of these genes. In one case, it was Lewis Dietz syndrome. And that completely changes the management of that patient once we realize they have that. And it changes the type of conversation we'll have not only with the patient, but also what I may relay to my surgical colleagues. I think the other thing we hear a lot is uh, how we then coordinate, you know, follow up with the physician who sent them to us. And I'd say in the last uh, year and a half uh, with COVID, we've had the uh, great explosion of, uh, of virtual care, uh, both by uh, using video chat as well as phone chat. And we've seen escalation, then de-escalation of where and how we're allowed to do it to. But once typically it is a patient that we've engaged with for that problem, we can do some remote uh, follow-up. And so I don't know if either one of you two want to sort of talk about how we've sort of done that and some of the lessons we've learned yeah. over the last year and a half. I mean, and this, thanks, Sean, this is not necessarily only related to aortic aneurysm or dissection patients. This is healthcare delivery in general, cardiovascular medicine in particular, and maybe even specific to to the dissection patients who require careful follow-up. So yes, uh, some sort of telehealth has become a very crucial aspect of our taking care of patients. So uh, in my role in operations, one of the things we have made sure in cardiovascular medicine is if you are an inpatient getting discharged, everyone is offered at least a virtual visit or an in-person visit uh, with a provider at one week in follow-up. Uh, so if you are from a catchment area, you wanna come in, you will have an appointment in person. If you wanna do a virtual visit, you will have an appointment uh, within one week. This helps A, alleviate anxiety from the patient if they have any lingering questions that have come up, some lifestyle adjustment questions. Uh, very often medication questions, you know, a lot of times the readmissions happen because of volume overload, because of hypertension. Uh, so all these things can be addressed uh, during these follow-up. And then there's a 
After that uh, appointment, there's always a follow-up either with your local providers or if you choose to continue care with us, uh, that is also offered at about four to six weeks. And for the dissection folks, especially if they've had any uh, surgical or uh, percutaneous therapies, there are established guidelines of follow-up imaging to establish a a time frame based progression or make sure there is no progression of disease. So, so uh, we have robust plans basically to make sure there's a continuity of care. At least in our practice, we, for aortopathy, we, if the patients are coming from outside of our Cleveland Clinic uh, catchment area, uh, they should continue care with their local providers or, and or cardiologists, uh, local primary care providers and or cardiologists, but we also recommend uh, some element of follow-up care with us on an ongoing basis. And with telehealth, it has made things substantially uh, more feasible. Any, any other comments in terms of the telehealth uh, initiatives that we haven't brought up already? Dr. Cameron? No, I'd agree with Dr. Desai. I'll tell you one thing that I have found helpful and in one case um, was availability of imaging data um, as well as telehealth. And in one case, I was able to be pretty sure that a patient had a genetic disorder that happened to involve the aorta as well as blood vessels in the brain. And the telehealth was actually sufficient for us to get all the information needed to know that the patient required a genetic test. The patient then presented for it and actually had it was type two Lewis Dietz syndrome. And I think what the patient indicated is they lived very, very far away, but they were satisfied with the quality of the service and our ability to pre-evaluate all the scans. And so um, we're very clear with patients that we'll evaluate data that's uh, perhaps from outside our institution. And it's oftentimes quite helpful. Um, and a lot of times we don't need to repeat that imaging. And in conjunction with telehealth, I'll, I'll tell you that the patients with aortic disease particularly, I find it very helpful. And, and I think the one thing that we've learned is still one of the difficulties from the acute event where we've been able to establish with the uh, hospital that's trying to send the patient the ability to electronically transfer images. Once the patient's in the outpatient setting and there may be five, seven different eight locations they might get imaging at, I think one of the difficulties we're still working through is how to get those scans and follow-up sent to us electronically. Uh, and I think that's one of the difficulties is that the patient wants to have a virtual visit and you've done an implant of some kind or you're watching something and it's really to make sure we have those actual images before you do the virtual visit and so we continue to try and improve those events and so uh, we like working very well with our clinicians to sit there and say hey if you don't know how to order the scan we can send to you exactly how the radiologist should set the scan up so it meets our needs so we don't have to repeat that but we still struggle with having more and more institutions who can electronically transfer us the data. And I think that's still one of the difficulties we've not yet ironed out in the virtual care and the, the telehealth systems. And I think as our government mandates the hospitals and EMRs to talk to each other better, hopefully that'll improve. But otherwise it's an it's a institution by institution event and then filling out a lot of release forms to get those sent to us. And, and also, it is important, not just the process of image transfer, but homogenization of image acquisition, especially, you know, for aortic imaging that is uh, beyond the front, beyond close to the heart. So infradiaphragmatic, it is relatively easy, but 
it gets to be challenging when you have to establish imaging protocols for the ascending aorta or the thoracic aorta in general because of significant risk of motion artifacts. And, and e so uh, use of different techniques, including gating, et cetera, is, is crucial uh, in, in these patients. And, and, and education of folks it becomes, uh, uh, in different centers, becomes uh, important as it relates to, to making sure imaging is standardized, transfer of data is standardized, and that, that way patients are well taken care of, there's not angst, uh, and there is uh, uniformity of care uh, and care delivery. So I wanna welcome a latecomer, this is Dr. Roselli, who's the surgical director of the Aortic Center. Uh, just like always, he was involved, uh, delayed in patient care, so, uh, a little late Hi, in getting here. And so we're just doing the discussion with physicians about aortic dissection. And we were talking a little bit out of how we've used telehealth to help uh, ease the ability of uh, patients to get remote care with us after we've uh, either set on a medical pathway of, of follow-up or, or they've had a surgical repair. Yeah, um, I I'm, I'm appreciate you guys being patient and allowing me to jump in, uh, but I did come straight from the ORs, you know. Um, yeah, I think the key that lesson that we've learned about this, uh, this disease process over the last decade and a half is that it requires lifelong care. And exactly how and when and the cadence of, of imaging is still something we're figuring it out, you know, figuring out. But none of the literature is going to help us because none of the literature only gives us five or ten years of follow-up. And our patients are surviving into their second decades and beyond. So... You know, even somebody who's 10 or 15 years out from a dissection and things look stable, they still need to have an imaging study every year or two or something at least, you know, at least every couple of years, if, even if it's been stable for a long time. And for, to ask those people to travel a long way to an aorta center might be difficult. It's been really nice to work with, uh, you know, the partners uh, uh, that are taking care, the, the medical, part, medical health care partners that are taking care of these patients at home uh, to coordinate, you know, getting the images transferred, having those conversations with the patients and letting them know that they still have access uh, to some of the really complex care that we deliver, even though it might not be now. Um, you can't just forget these people and say, it's been good for a long time, you're done. So with that, maybe we'll draw our session to a close. And uh, uh, if you guys ever want to find out more, please come to the Cleveland Clinic website, to the Aortic Center website, and we're happy to help serve your patients in any way we can. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.